Some dreams die a slow death and others die rather suddenly. My dreams of uh, being an aerospace engineer died rather slowly throughout my junior year of high school. Now before that I had watched space shuttle launches. I went to uh, space camp. I owned a telescope and loved astronomy. I dreamed of working at NASA. But math, <laughs> math derailed my dreams. More accurately, perhaps, Algebra 2 revealed that I needed a new career path. Every night before a quiz or a test, my dear dad would sit at the kitchen table until late, late at night, teaching me the algebra that I was supposed to be learning every day at school. And he would open the book with no context, having not studied algebra in uh, decades. He would look at these formulas that so baffled me and figure them out just by reading the textbook page and then proceed to try and teach me how he figured it out and how I could uh, not make a D plus or C minus on the next quiz. Now, I don't remember him ever getting impatient with me, but I do remember that, that look of, how are you not getting this? How does this not make any sense to you? But it, it didn't make sense to me. I did not understand. Now, Jesus has many of these moments with his disciples. How are you still not getting this? And he has one here in verse 17. Do you still not see and do you not understand? So he proceeds to teach them again about bread and about the kingdom. And Mark notes that the disciples in verse 14, he tells us, had forgotten bread and they had only one loaf between them. Now, that's the setup for Jesus' teaching in the very next verse, where he almost seems to be nodding to the one loaf that the disciples are holding and perhaps looking at. Like, how did we only remember to bring one loaf? Mark has Jesus almost pointing to this one loaf that they brought aboard, and he says, be careful. Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. The one loaf is an image of the kingdom that has two ways of going bad. There are two types of yeast or leaven that threaten the recipe. Now, Jews used to use leaven to make ordinary bread, but at Passover, leaven was forbidden. And it was to remind Israel of the time that they were in such a hurry to leave captivity in Egypt that they only had time for unleavened bread. And now Jesus alludes to this practice and warns about the leaven of both Herod and the Pharisees as he seeks to build a renewed Israel, a new kingdom that disavows the mistakes that were made over and over in Israel's past, which is where this quote from Jeremiah in verse 18 comes from. This was a time where Israel was so caught up in its own affairs that 
they grew more and more unconcerned about the things of God, allowing in what is supposedly God's holy land and his holy nation, allowing injustice and violence and inequity in their society for so long that God abandoned them to their fate at the hand of outsiders and foreigners. Now, this seems rather punitive, but remember how many prophets like Jeremiah that God sent to Israel to warn them about being a nation that took on God's name, but not his righteousness, not his way of life. Israel was, for so much of her history, a very religious and yet very ungodly nation. And it's not that difficult to see parallels, is it, between Israel in her unfaithful moments and our nation in this moment where we see a a very superficial spirituality that's masking a deeply unjust and deeply unequal society, where civic religion is deeply compromised by an alliance with imperial power. Now, Jesus is worried in his day that Israel is repeating the very same mistakes from its past, allowing religious leaders to undermine Israel's radical calling by colluding with the pagan power of the state. Now he says to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. First the Pharisees, and then right on cue they they show up seeking to dispute Jesus' vision and demanding a sign to test his credentials. And we, we should think, if we've been paying attention, a sign, they seek a sign. What about the miraculous feeding of five and then 4,000 people? What about all of these supernatural healings? What about him casting out demons? How are these things not signs that he is Messiah? Not signs of his divinity. How do these things not credential him? But when we we lack (laughs) the willingness to see things right in front of us, there's nothing so mystifying as the obvious. When we lack the willingness to see things that are right in front of us, there's nothing so mystifying as the truth. What is a sign, as it turns out, is the Pharisees' demand for a sign. And Jesus groaned deeply in his spirit and wondered, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. The request for a sign is a sign that they are not willing to believe the signs that they're already given. And this generation is sort of shorthand for all of Jesus's contemporaries who are unwilling to receive his kingdom, which, to be fair, is radically subversive to the mainstream religious and political thought of the day. So anyone, like the Pharisees, who are beholden to the way things are, 
are like those in Jeremiah's day, unable, unable to see with two good eyes and unable to hear with two good ears. Mark is telling them, he's telling us, you have signs already. The concrete, historical, physical works of justice and compassion that Jesus is doing everywhere he goes. There will be no signs from heaven because there are already signs on earth. There are signs that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and that God is doing something new, that he is on the move through Jesus' physical, historical, concrete works of justice and righteousness. Remember, this whole exchange comes on the heels of two miraculous feedings, as if Mark is saying, these are the signs that you should be looking for. These are the signs that should validate Jesus as Messiah. Not a sign from heaven that confirms your expectations, but real tangible signs of God's compassion being distributed to the poor and the hungry. That when the kingdom is established, all can eat and all will be satisfied. Now there's a second type of leaven that Jesus refers to, and that's the leaven of Herod. Now Herod, as we have learned so far, is the aspirational king of the Jews. He ruled over through inheritance part of Israel, a quarter of Israel, and a part of a larger whole that sought to preserve its existence, its, its national identity by surrendering to and colluding with Roman imperial power. Herod made compromises to keep Israel's religious and political leadership in place, despite Israel effectively being a vassal state that has been assimilated to the Roman Empire and all of its gods. And so Jesus is challenging here, friends, not only the moral moralism and the legalism of the Pharisees that protected its power by their religious performance, but also the political assimilation at the very heart of Israel. You see, there is both religious and irreligious opposition to Jesus's one loaf idea of the kingdom. The irreligious opposition comes from the Herodians who wanted political power. They wanted God to establish their tribe, their royal family as the true rulers of Israel. And they were willing to suffer the dilution of Israel's distinctiveness as it's absorbed by the cultural imperialism of Rome, if only their tribe could get ahead, if only their political allies could get ahead. And because they were so committed to that, they were unwitting, an unwitting opposition group to Jesus that later became more of a witting one. The religious opposition comes from the Pharisees who policed the boundaries 
of true Israel, who wanted God to set up a kingdom for the benefit of those who, like themselves, observed the law with great strictness. And we see that Yahweh was in their system, to be sure. He was buried somewhere deep. He was hidden behind the boundary of the Pharisees' performative moralism. You had to go through that in order to get to Yahweh. Now, both of these, the irreligious and the religious, not one alone, threatened the type of kingdom that Jesus says God himself envisioned. That is that one loaf that can feed both the religious and the irreligious. One loaf that can feed Jew and Gentile. One loaf that is given both for the rich and the poor. This is the point of Jesus's don't you remember question. The symbolism of these two wilderness feedings should have been obvious to the disciples. In the first one where he fed 5,000, they were in Jewish territory. There were five loaves and there were 12 baskets, two numbers that are steeped in symbolism to the Jewish people. And they were held in a kofinos, which is a Jewish name for a basket. In the second, where he feeds the 4,000, they're in Gentile territory, using the Gentile name for basket, spherus. In other words, what Mark is trying to show us here is that these two feedings were different versions of the very same thing. They are both representative of the nature of Jesus' kingdom, stylized for different settings and different audiences. But now they, they should see that Jesus is behind both of these, that he is the one loaf that feeds both, that is abundant for all, for the hungry and the poor. In some way, it is this that the disciples are missing. In some way, it is this that Jesus is saying to them, do you still not understand? They had seen the miracles. They had been in person when these things had happened. They knew the facts of the story, but they didn't know what they meant. As Albert Einstein says, as I quoted in your bulletin, any fool can know the real trick, the real challenge is to understand. The disciples knew what Jesus were doing. They knew what Jesus said, but they didn't know or maybe they refused to know what he meant. That at the center of the world, there was a love that didn't privilege their ethnicity, that didn't privilege their religiosity, that didn't privilege their nationality, or even their proximity to Jesus. That at the center of the world, there was an overwhelming love that was now embodied in this one loaf idea, in one person, as a matter of fact, that undermines our self-righteousness 
and all the boundaries that it erects between us and other hungry people that we choose to see as different from us. This one loaf gives us the idea that to see Jesus is to see him not in theory and not in the abstract, not just in the facts about him, but to see him in concrete manifestations of grace and of justice, taking root in lives like ours all around us, whereby people with every incentive to remain apart are drawn together into one humanity, into one loaf, into one gospel, and into one kingdom. And we now get to benefit upon that truth today. Today, right now, as we come to the table, we get to feed upon that idea, that truth, that knowledge, the body of Jesus, that all of us stand equally in need of Jesus' body, and that we all may receive equal care and forgiveness through it. So let's confess our faith and let's come to Jesus' table. Let me pray for us and then we'll confess our faith together. Father, I pray that you would feed us, feed us, that you would feed this church. Father, I pray that through this bread and through this wine that you would make us new. Father, I pray that we would as we eat together, as we drink together, that we would see not our differences, but that we would see our unity, that we would see in you that one loaf that is able to feed both the rich and the hungry, the religious and the irreligious. I pray that you would let us feed deeply and that we would lean into your provision of grace for all eternity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.